Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Hi, Richard. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? Now, here, here we are. You've been you've been very wet. We've been very damp. Um, <laughs> it has been, yeah. I know. And over and over, friends of ours in the US are having a variety of things. They're mm-hmm. still very dry over in, uh, in California. So, of course, all our wonderful friends over in Europe are uh, having a mixture of um, uh, emotional and struggles with what's going on in Ukraine. And uh, mm, mm. so it, it's an extraordinary bit of a world at the moment. The, the temperature is has got different gauges all over the place. But, it's, a, uh, it's a dynamic world in many different ways, isn't it? Yeah, yes, that's yeah. a bit too dynamic. We can, <laughs> we can, we, it can settle down anytime soon. But we're certainly uh, enjoying the work. We've got a lovely guest with us today. But just, just mm-hmm. very quickly, one of the things that we're we're asking people to think about as you're listening to the podcast, we send out messages on on uh, Facebook and uh, various other places. But what we're finding is, of course, there's algorithms that get in mm. get in the way. So uh, if you want to keep up with the podcast, just the, the information about it, but also the courses that we're doing, we regularly send out information, uh, offers and different programs that come out, our newsletter type of mm. information. Uh, yeah. So pop into the website and just pop your your email give us your email for our newsletter and that'll keep you up to date and you can you can you know not miss out because we've had a number of people getting in contact saying oh you you I, you didn't tell me about that you didn't tell me about that and and we yeah. really did try so yeah. if you want to keep up with us do that we'd really much appreciate it to the newsletter that's not that's not necessarily oh, you please go in and subscribe uh, mm-hmm. and become members but uh, you know just come into our newsletter and that'll keep you up to date Absolutely. Email newsletter is the way to stay in touch. Um, as Richard said, we're finding social media increasingly uh, uh, difficult. Um, to... <laughs> difficult, we say yeah. in, you know, in quote marks. But uh, but All tell right. us about tell us about our fabulous guest today, Jay Norris. <laughs> yeah. Jay Norris. Yes. Yeah. So um, Jay started in academia as a professor of anthropology. He had a PhD in psychological anthropology. Uh, then he saw the light. <laughs> <laughs> he, became, he became a psychotherapist. So, <laughs> or he went down the rabbit hole. Depends on how you. Yeah, that, yeah. That's that, that's right. And he, he's so he's published a, a, a number of different books, and the, the one that we were going to sort of focus on today is parts and memory therapy where he's combining internal family systems, ego state, dissociative identity disorder, uh, memory reconsolidation, a bunch more things. And he's yeah. he's consolidated all of these things into a particular therapeutic technique, which sounds very interesting to us. So we thought we'd get him on the show and have a chat. Well, let's head off over to the States and talk to Jay. Hi, Jay, and welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Uh, I've looked forward to it. Yes, and of course, I'm here too. We're in the the other sort of middle part of the country, but uh, it is great. We've talked about you and seen things and engaged. It's the first time we've seen you face to face, which is which is really terrific, which may sound odd for the podcast, but we, we're doing this on video as well, boys and girls. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm glad we did. And it is face to face. Thinking about the last couple of years where 
were stuck in doing therapy uh, in our homes and and using the video. There are some of many of my patients I've never actually been in front of them. It's always been virtual. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we get well, used to it. And we're, and we're learning ways of uh, of engaging with it, and all automatically our systems are working it out for us. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's quite it's quite nice. It's different. It's just something to be worked with. But but here we are, and uh, and and Matt. So of course mm-hmm. we're talking about Jay's book, but you know Jay's work, and uh, you know we 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 want to sort of get get into some of the the, the practical aspects and then dive in. What are we going to do, Matt? Well, first of all, let's learn a little bit more about Jay. Jay, do you want to give us a, a little bit of a bio of um, of who you are, where you're practicing, and and how you came to this, you know, really unique parts and memory therapy concept? Okay, my uh, bio is spotty. I leave some things out, but uh, <laughs> academically, I began as an anthropologist and taught anthropology at, at different universities wrote my dissertation on psychological anthropology, but left that field entirely and discovered after some years psychology, which was my dream as a a young person, but I never got around to it until quite late. And then uh, about 25 years ago, I began to study psychology in earnest and uh, became a licensed psychotherapist uh, in uh, in 1998, and then I've been practicing since then. And uh, because I married the right woman, uh, I have had time to start writing the books. I only published one book as uh, as an anthropologist, but now as a uh, a therapist, as a psychologist, I've published four and right. uh, preparing. For the next. <laughs> now, so, you'll, you'll have to explain about your wife because she, she works with you and she's a therapist as well. Isn't that right? Yes, it is. She is a therapist. She brings uh, excitement to our work. And she's the, uh, the one who can just work and work and work and work and seemingly never get tired and then give me the results in the morning. And I say, what do I do with it? Well, proofread it. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's what happens. We do workshops uh, and train other therapists here. Uh, and once I've told her what we're going to do, then she runs with it and takes my previous work and puts it all together in a workshop uh, kind of form. So, uh, partnerships fantastic. are wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, talking about um, parts of memory therapy, um, can you give us a, a little bit of background of the, the things that you've pulled together? I, I understand there's a bit of a synergy between a number of different influences that you've had um, to come up with this therapeutic technique. I think that the answer to, to that question or what, or what you just suggested, there being uh, a number of influences, I'm not sure that I could name them all. But uh, mainly, it's it's uh, what I found in psychotherapy when I began. I was not comfortable with the model that I was taught. And uh, I used them because there was nothing else available. And then began to uh, become aware of something called uh, internal family systems therapy. It was the work of Schwartz, uh, Richard uh, Schwartz, and found that fascinating. 
And at the same time, I discovered the work of John Hell Watkins, who had also published in, uh, let's see, 99, they published the um, uh, ego state therapy. Those two things fascinated me. And then I got involved in, uh, in the study of uh, dissociative identity disorder. And for 12 years, I argued with the experts, uh, since I was not an expert, and, and I argued with the experts and tried to convince them that they had it wrong. Uh, so that was a great time, 12 years of that. I never convinced them. But what I said they were wrong about was that having parts of the self is normal. And the position of, of uh, those foundation people in on that website, their position was that, no, at least early on, we began, later they began to compromise a bit. But uh, early on, they felt that uh, parts were uh, the result of the breaking up of the self and into pieces. And so the job of the therapist was to put them back together again and fuse them. And I said, it's not my experience because I just read those two sources, uh, Richard Schwartz and uh, the two Watkinses, and it didn't fit. And uh, I also went to a, uh, a one-week uh, workshop that Richard Schwartz had. And although I favored the hypnosis-based work of the Watkinses, I actually tried to use Richard Schwartz's framework. But by about 2004 or 5, began to question it for my own purposes. And as a result of the arguments that I used to have with the people who studied dissociative identity disorder, I got invited to present my ideas for a workshop across the country on the other coast in uh, West Virginia. And uh, that was the beginning of my doing my own writing because I had to write something up before I was just winging it. And so that led me to, to write or write the notes. But then finally I published my first book in 2012. That was right. Parts Psychology. At that time, the, uh, the influence of Richard Schwartz's approach on my work is evident. I used uh, much of his language. Uh, and frankly, I use the term neutralizing to refer to the disappearing act that we try to do with negative emotions, whereas uh, Richard Schwartz uses the concept of uh, there being a burden. And so getting rid of it is unburdening. Uh, I use that, although by then I was already in my own right uh, work and with my own patients using the term neutralizing, because I thought that was more uh, more accurate. And so in the last two books I wrote, I've changed completely. I no longer use any of Dick Schwartz's uh, frameworks and have been developed my own. And... Uh, that is uh, part psychology on my own. But then I discovered what uh, uh, Bruce Ecker was bringing over from uh, neuroscience and memory reconsolidation. Yep. So I, I, in my last two books, uh, Healing Amelia and, and uh, this current book, The Guide to Partial Memory Therapy, this is where I've tried to fully integrate the translation of, of the material uh, done 
well, the work done by the uh, the harder scientists and brought into psychotherapy by Bruce Eckler. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. taken, taken what I needed and built uh, my approach from parts and from the material that Bruce Eckler brought over. The memory I work have to say yeah. that I'm a little bit different in the way that I use uh, memory work. Uh, right. And it's because what I learned from from the Watkinses, especially Helen Watkins, she wrote a paper in uh, 1980 in which she demonstrated how to effectively neutralize the anger of uh, a part of one of her patients. She was working in hypnosis, and she called the paper "Silent Silent Abreaction." Abreaction referring to the what used to be a rather volatile and violent expression by a patient of his or her pain. And she showed how to do it with, uh, with hypnosis and essentially by in hypnosis by exhausting herself, that is the patient's part. Uh, so here's my first introduction to parts. Uh, Helen Watkins helped the patient take a walk with her on a mountain path. And that appears to be uh, a part that she was working with, the angry part. On the path, they came across a boulder, couldn't get past it. Helen said, well, there's a club, a wooden stick. Just break it up, break up that boulder with it. And of course, wood doesn't break stone, but it exhausted her. And as a result of that exhaustion, working in the hypnotic uh, setting, just exhausting herself in trying to burst that that rock out of the way, the patient reduced her anger in just the way that uh, Helen Watkins intended to. And then that was a result of work in the 1970s. Richard Schwartz's work, I believe, starts in the early 1980s. And then I combined the Watkins work with the uh, with the Schwartz work, as I said. And what I gained from uh, Richard Schwartz in terms of Parso was his concept that we take individual parts, we find individual parts that that uh, specialize in different roles in the working of the mind, and then. Those uh, parts who have roles that are that are problematic for the patient are the ones that need to be in his work unburdened because over time they acquire emotional burdens, and mm-hmm. so the work aims at neutralizing his work, unburdening those burdens, and uh, it worked pretty well. I found neutralizing better for my case. And, and went off in a different direction in other areas that we disagree on that we don't need to get into here. Uh, yeah. People can di- disagree and, and still appreciate. Because it's really interesting, this this nature of, of what we talk about using this term parts, and some people find it difficult to grasp. Others people find it very easy to grasp. And I know we'll go through the sort of the step process or sort of the progressive process that you use. But I just wanted to bring in a bit of my own anecdote because uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people are aware that I was a, an actor. I was a professional actor for 20 years, which uh, I thought was terrific training for being a psychotherapist because you got mm-hmm. to play lots of different people. But it was this type of thing. It was a 
Uh, I almost describe uh, uh, the, the the way you worked was you imagined yourself as like a, a, a large music fader desk, a music desk, and there's all these different parts and you could raise or lower the energy of them. And in doing so, you altered the nature of what you appeared like, altered the nature of, of the character. And I remember the thing that actually it was this ability to to move and change and as you say energize some parts exhaust other parts to to dissipate them was when I was doing an improvisation in the early stages of my uh, study and I was about I think about six months in and I began improvising a bit about a relationship problem I was having with a, a, a lass in the class who was probably improvising on her relationship. And about halfway through, suddenly it began to be the relationship I was having with this girl, this totally fictional, in-the-moment a different experience that had frameworks and elements of uh, of what I was doing, uh, my persona, but I was saying things and it was almost like there was two of me. There was an observer part of me looking mm-hmm. at this operator, this actor, and going, oh, look, gee, that's interesting, Richard. I don't know why you said that. Oh, gosh, I wouldn't have done that. I wonder why you're doing it. It was really quite amazing. But at the end of the experience... It was just this extraordinary revelation of how I have the capacity to adapt and adjust and shift my and shift the elements within me. And I'm guessing that uh, this is what you're doing because this is what I've been looking to do with people ever since, and this is what I see uh, in in your work. This this capacity to find the way to manipulate and reorganise those 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 elements, those parts, which in acting was what we were supposed to do, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can we get on to that? How do you get them there? I mean, I had to uh, embarrass myself in front of lots of people and say and do very weird and peculiar things. Uh, not necessarily the most recommended uh, way of doing positive therapy. So you've got this process. What what do you do? How do you get them to, to be realising and working with these things? So that, that four-step uh, protocol that I use is an overview mostly for teaching other therapists how to use this approach. Uh But I follow this protocol, and if I get lost in where I am with a patient, I go back into my brain and find my notes and say, oh, yes, I'm at stage two or three or whatever. But I'll tell you what they are. And uh, the first one, uh, simply says that we have to define the problem. And in order to define a problem in a way that we can work with it in, in therapy, it needs to be expressed in simple terms. Maybe other, maybe other approaches can deal with complex, abstract language, but for this work, we need simplicity in the sense of concrete terms. And so instead of saying... I've got low self-esteem, I would rather she or he say, oh, when the boss walks in, I I can't talk. I get too nervous to talk. So, which is a sign of of low self-esteem. So it's that behavior and that perception of being unable to speak uh, when the boss walks in, that's what I'm going to work with, not the abstract uh, low self-esteem. So that's number one, define it in terms that we can use and that 
and that we can uh, bring to the place where ultimately we'll neutralize the memories that created that low self-esteem. And the second step is simply, now that we know what the target is, now we've got to find the part that carries that problem. So I want to find, in the case, since I started with low self-esteem, I want to find the part who certainly has low self-esteem and who influences the patient in that way, such as perhaps that part whispering in the patient's ear, oh, you can't do that. That's too much for you. They won't like you over there. And that might be one way that low self-esteem is expressed, but there's so many different ways. So I don't mean to imply all low self-esteem is due to what I just uh, use as examples. So that part that we find that I say whispering, it, it's really that part is a part of what constitutes the self. And it's not always paying attention, but when it does influence itself, it does so seamlessly since all of the parts that make up the self have the ability to blend and bring about new behavior, thinking, and actions for each of us. Because we all have parts that we're influenced mm-hmm. in that way. Such as, mm, yeah. if, I get ang- if I get angry, I'm going to raise my voice. And I am going to start speaking with defiance. Mm. Nobody mess with me, for example. Then we know my angry part's taken over. Uh, yeah. And that's true of everyone. Uh, the parts influence us to behave in a way that they conceive of themselves, meaning parts. So uh, second, the second step is the find the part that carries a problem. And that's very simple to do. In 80% of my patients, we can do it in our first effort. Sorry, Jay, these, yeah. are, these are parts that carry the problem. They're not necessarily the parts that are the problem. That'd be correct? I would say uh, both, yeah. Both. When I, they carry the problem and that they carry the memories that created the problem. Mm-hmm. And they express the thoughts and feelings that are the problem for the patient. Right. Who then is affected by the influence of them. Okay, I just I just wanted to just explore that a little bit because we it's it's not like mm-hmm. we're wanting to eliminate a certain part. It's it's more the part is carrying that problem. Yes, so well, we certainly well, don't want to want to eliminate a part. No, yes, want, I think we want to tame it. Yes, and that's what's we're going to go to in three and four. I I I would imagine. So we've as we as just sort of there we are. We, as we interrupted you there, sort of talking about. No, so that's we, fine. We found what uh, what part is the is the the context of this. So then we go uh, to step three. What what do you look at then? So then we interview. We actually interview the part that we found, and in order to do that, we have to differentiate or dissociate the part from the rest of the community of selves, so that we can guide the patient in in asking the part. Uh, what is its answer to my question? So I, ha- I have to work hard at this point to convince the patient not to give me his or her words, but to give me the impression of what you're learning from the part here that we found. So I want to identify the part, and then I want to ask that part, the part that we found, 
And this is one of two types of uh, structural parts. This is a part that I call the freestanding part because it's not stuck in any particular memory. I asked the freestanding part for its earliest disturbing memory of any kind. And that memory then becomes the target for neutralizing. And it might be the memory of father or mother suppressing uh, creativity or suppressing uh, library visits uh, because they're not interested in that. They'd go, rather go to the, to the races. So at any rate, being disapproved of it, like it to be one source, and we neutralize whatever memory that part has included in its set of memories. So every freestanding part has its own set of linked memories. They're linked by themes, and the themes are themselves all about events that cause or have led to the adult's low self-esteem. So there's our target, the memories, and then comes step four, how do we neutralize those memories that have affected the future so powerfully? Step four means uh, neutralizing it, and that's neutralizing with the help of the work in uh, memory reconsolidation. So we I identify the problem, and we activate the second type of part, and it's a step in the memory part. It has no knowledge of what's going on in a patient's life. It is stuck in that time and place of the trauma or the hurtful or otherwise disturbing memory. And so it's a different kind of consciousness, really, that this second kind of part has. So then I'll guide my patient in getting to know this stuck-in-the-memory part. And it turns out, as as crazy as it is to uh, perhaps the average person, the patient or the therapist can have a conversation directly with the part that is stuck in the memory. So we could be talking with a five-year-old part, stuck in the memory part, of an adult who is 40. And that part, that stuck in the memory part, is important because it is the one that experienced the pain. Yeah, it's so interesting. I saw a fabulous exercise that somebody did when I was in a discussion group about this some years ago, talking about this being stuck in the in the in that development, that, that developmental uh-huh. uh, st- sticking. And uh, the, the, uh, they sort of, we sort of knew where we were going, but the, uh, the lecturer was keeping us a little bit, uh, his, his goal ambiguous. And we had some pieces of paper and pencil in front of us. And he said, uh, so quickly just uh, draw a house for me. And uh, so we all just quickly drew a house on the piece of paper. And then he said, just hold them up for everyone to see. And as you looked around the room, there was everything from just, you know, sort of four lines with a bit of a square window and a door and a uh, chimney to a 3D sort of landscaped direction. And he said, there, I now, I can reasonably safely say that each of you are expressing where you stopped developing as an artist. (laughs) Now, of course, not developing as an artist is not a terrible thing and isn't going to dramatically affect your life. But do you see how you can? 
And it really just, I thought, wow. And of course, then I, because of that, I went on and I tried to develop myself as an artist. So I wasn't quite <laughs> so, so childlike. But this whole thing is if you're, and I'm working with a client and I'm, I'm utilizing a lot of the ideas that you're, you're expressing. Um, and part of her development in some respects is still in early teenage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now she's in her 40s and she says, well, how do I how do I do this? How do I catch up? And so that's another part of the of the process too, because we're literally having to catch up 20 years of of you know that wonderful thing in life where you could just make mistakes and you learn from them very simply. Right. Whereas um, so what's that process of catching up? the the historic that development how rapidly can that be done or is it very individualistic or what's the sort of way you approach bringing them back uh into a a, a current state with those parts i think you covered all the bases there from from uh, a very short time to a long time right but i did guided an invention uh, just tuesday in our time uh so monday last night I guided one intervention for one problem, and it took uh, 20 minutes. And the yeah. problem was uh, this patient was, uh, she was seeing me for other things as well. But one of her problems was she was learning a new trade, uh, a new uh, way of making a living, and uh, taking a course in that. But whenever the trainer got in front of her, she became fumble fingers and couldn't put the things where they were supposed to, to be put and so forth. And she asked, can you help me with that? I get so nervous when I feel someone judging me. No, mm. so I said, sure. And we already had the foundation of how to work with parts. So that part, I didn't have to explain. Now, once uh, a patient learns how we're working together, things go very quickly sometimes. And I ask her, if she could see herself in that memory she's telling me about of how she was fumble fingers in front of her trainer. But in this case, this stuff in the memory part is not years ago. It was just the week previous. But uh, there's the stuff in the memory part. And then after introducing herself and me, I asked her to ask the fumble fingers part for her earliest disturbing memory of any kind. And the memory she came up with was a memory of being in the fourth grade in a new school. And she was the only person of her ethnicity and two girls in front of her. And she didn't know anyone. New school for her. Two girls in front of her began talking to her about how they wouldn't look like she does and naming her characteristics. And so there was our target. She was devastated by that. It affected certainly her self-esteem and turns out it affected her nervousness, being judged by others. In this case, she was being judged by these two girls ahead of her. So we neutralized that by asking uh, the patient to, to focus on that memory of being the one way back, the, uh, the fourth grader, uh, and asked the fourth grader, oh, what disturbed her? And then we used a, I don't remember, using wind, water, or fire, but we used one of those as a means of cleansing, symbolically cleansing, the fourth grader 
of the hurt and the pain she felt. Right. And we can talk more about that. That's the use mm. of the memory approach. But the key is that once we neutralized that and we came back to the to the scene where she was all fumble fingers in front of the uh, trainer, she was calm. Mm, As, yeah. And I also think about the further training you're going to get next week. Imagine yourself there. She's calm. So Very that nice. single incident, yep. that single intervention fixed that problem. Doesn't seem like much, but it was for her. And it was gone. And then other times I've worked for years in very complex cases with one yeah. patient. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it's a single thing. Sometimes it's, you know, you, you peel one bit off and the onion keeps having to be peeled. But, right. but yeah, no, that answers my question very well. Thanks. Thanks. Yes. So, so in that example, when we're talking about memory reconsolidation and we're juxtaposing one emotional memory with another, you use this imagery of, 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 of fire, of cleansing um, mm-hmm. as the, the juxtaposition. Now, right. do, you, do, you, do you always do this um, juxtaposition of the emotional content to clear that disturbing memory within the part or do you utilize other parts to come in to create a contrast? How how do you work that? Well, there are um, three entities of the patient that I work with. That's the one who's sitting in front of me. And then then there is the freestanding part who handles that general problem Mm. and who collects memories and then three, the third entity is the stuck in the memory part. Yeah. And uh, and so then, since the third, the stuck in the memory part is the one with the memory, the problem memory, uh, then I guide the patient in working directly with the stuck in the memory part. I use the freestanding part to get us there, to locate it, and then I guide the patient to carry out the intervention with the uh, stuff in the memory part. I don't know why I can't remember from last night, but let's say it was fire. Then I would have said to her, all right, I would have said to my patient, uh, speak to the child and ask if she would like to stop feeling that way that she feels after we've got a number zero to 10 for how disturbing it. And we get a yes. Then I ask the patient to, choose wind, water, fire, or some other, any other, symbolically mm-hmm. cleansing or disappearing for that emotion. And let's say she chose fire, then I would say, all right, so to the patient, take that little girl over in memory form, take that little girl over and uh, let her throw all of her negative feelings that she feels into the fire and watch them burn up. Just keep throwing until all of her embarrassment and her shame and her sadness and her fear of disappointing and all of that are burnt up in the fire. And once that little girl goes to zero in our measurement, we're done. Mm. And, we'll, mm. and, and then we come back. And if if there are other memories that need to be healed, held by the freestanding part, then we'll go to the next one, the next earliest one. But in okay. the case of last night, it only took one. That's interesting that the the, the symbology um, would have to be emotionally salient enough to change the emotional memory content. And so that's... Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the way that I do it. 
but I'm really not sure. I haven't tried something else. Uh, I've, I've used the cartoon dynamite that uh, yep. from years yeah. ago, the big red sticks with the long fuses, and, mm -hmm. and I had the patient throw their pain onto that pile and then throw a match on and blow it up. Uh, that works. Do, do you do, you do chair work as well? Like physically, do do you move clients around, do chair work, that sort of thing to sort of no. enhance that? No. no. Okay. I, I uh, haven't found it necessary. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I could reach that other 10% if I did. Right. But, but I've great success with about 90%. Already they can visualize a part. Uh, I've found ways of uh, helping them to visualize a part at that early stage when they're trying to find a part. On ways of doing that, mm -hmm. yeah. As well. I mean, my suggestion of what I'm I'm seeing here is, that, of course, here we're talking about what we might uh, uh, is loosely called mind to body sort of healing, mind to body changes, or sort of from our thinking, from our cognitive state to to the um, to the actual physical change. But this is the point when you when you when you're thinking of the the body as a complex system where it's all a dynamic integration and interaction, is that uh, the memory reconsolidation process, the synaptic connections that create what's associated and also the intensity of the reactions uh, become labile. Then it's this uh, this attitude, this orientation, this symbolic uh, representation. Uh, that comes through, whether it's a fire or a, or a, a firecracker or water or strangely, when you were saying, I, I imagined myself cleaning something with chewing gum where I stuck it to the chewing gum and threw it away, wow. just as a quick thought. But all these things stimulate the neurons to reconsolidate themselves within the context of that new perception of that that there's the juxtaposition of the, as you brought up beautifully met that that technical term that that um, uh, Bruce Ecker uses and it seems so simple but it is our, our neurobiology and our bio biology is already organized to move towards beneficial change. Uh, yeah, that, and it's just a matter of taking the actions that are necessary yeah taking the actions mm -hmm. that work yeah. Mm -hmm. And those early right. models you study uh, weren't doing that. And I can understand because there are quite a few I've, uh, well, not so much discarded, but I've just uh, taken uh, a couple of elements out and, and left the rest of the method away. Yeah, well, right. well certainly we know people in the, the um, internal family systems model who who say that you know, memory reconsolidation really is the, the mechanism of transformative change, you know, within their work. So it all works together. And now, Jay, you wanted to um, talk a, a little bit about features. Let's let's sort of transition into into talking about features. Well, I uh, took some time just to just to make note of several things that are different that I think are different and interesting about parts of memory therapy. And one of those is that, as far as I know, we are the only model that combines verbally acknowledges that we are combining the work in parts and the work in memory reconsolidation uh, oh. to produce this synergy. And then I also make explicit that the self is an amalgam of parts. The parts that make up the self uh, are 
those freestanding parts I was talking about. In fact, part of my definition of a freestanding part is that it, it is either uh, sharing the consciousness of the whole person or is capable of doing so in the definition. That's unlike the case with the stuff in the memory part where it's separated from. Part of the second step is really something I borrowed from uh, Francine Shapiro and in her 2001 book in which she suggested that all or most mental health issues are the result of trauma or trauma-like experiences. And so that is also what I say. But I do acknowledge where I got that thought and it makes sense for me to accept it as my own. Mm. Um, and the self is uh, an amalgam. Then I've already mentioned that there are two structural parts Whereas, as far as I know, others who talk about parts are really talking about a single structural type. They have many different uh, ways of presenting themselves, depending upon the context. It can be anger or sadness or fear or worry, but they're all one type. Uh, but you can see clearly that the stuff in a memory part, which has no access to current events in the patient's life and the freestanding part are, are structurally different. And we can't do memory work unless there is one of us in the memory that we have, because if we're not there, there is no memory, a bit obvious perhaps. Then uh, I also noticed that, and this is actually what Ecker says about uh, working with memory consolidation, but I like to emphasize it. When we neutralize a part of its negative emotions or body sensations and you take it to zero, it's truly zero. It will never, ever be a problem again mm. for that part and that memory. There may be overlapping memories held by other parts, but not for that part and that memory. No matter what the stress is, and Edgar often makes the point that when we're talking about traditional approaches, such as desensitization, under stress, the same phobias, the same uh, problems come out again under heavy stress. Not true of this, and they can't, because once we've neutralized it, as you were pointing out, Richard, the brain changes, and the elements that make up or the neurons in which they're stored, the, uh, the emotions or the body sensations, they're gone. Yeah, they're not in the brain anymore, it's, and so it's, it cannot yeah. happen. It's completely yeah. changed. It's yeah. um, it's it's um, what well as uh, what Dan Siegel says the 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 flow of energy and information and 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 this is of course uh, absolutely vital for an adaptive species. I mean, when when people say, "Oh, you can't," you know, "you can't lose or change," uh, you say, "Of course you can." The whole point yeah. is that what you what you had to do in order to manage life when you were two years old is going to be different when you're five and different when you're ten, because you're going to, at the very least, you're going to be a different size. So the juxtaposed truth is that you are taller. I mean, that's just one yeah. simple example. And if we didn't adapt, we'd have to, you know, at, at, at when we got to full height, we'd have to go through the, oh, this is the two-year-old behaviour. No, uh, okay, not that one. The fight, no, uh, not that one. You know, obviously, we have to 
wipe out or or at least um, make it no longer a, a necessary pathway. It is this enormous confusion that we have when we get to the end of a, a part of our time of our life when we're disturbed to find that uh, what you were so beautifully uh, describing in some of those examples, oh, my gosh, I am doing something that is based on a behaviour pattern I established when I was in the fourth grade and I'm still doing it now. And it, I, I simply have a, have missed somehow my normal, natural, adaptive yes. neurological behaviour, memory reconsolidation, and this is all to do with the other traumas. And we, uh, long, long story, read everybody's books, please. But, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I just, it's quite exciting to think that it is, it's not so much it's so easy, but it is so possible. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's what right. I liked. That's what yeah. I got from what you were saying, Jay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so Jay, as we as we sort of come to a close today, um, is there sort of some some final, maybe some summary uh, words you would like to tell our listeners, or something we've missed? Is there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, thank you for for offering that. I'll emphasize what I look for in the future. I believe that the memory reconsolidation on the one hand, and parts, and part psychology on the other hand, will be the future of psychology. And it will bring about a paradigm shift completely Mm. so that these constant repetitions and filling in the tiny holes of uh, the therapy that is now the focus of 84% of researchers in in the United States, the... the, uh, to work on cognition. Yeah, the, co- the, co- uh, the, the cognitive behavioral type therapy yeah. framework. So they're, yeah. The, yeah, they're working the on the outer brain and not the the inner brain where where we're working. The future lies in the midbrain, not the externalization and the factual information that we all have access to. I think yeah. that would be the case. So uh, what I'm doing, I hope, will be picked up and I know that I share the similarities and approaches with many others. And I hope we can continue to be uh, helpful to each other, borrow yeah. as needed. Yes, I, I think yeah, returning to our naturalness of adaptivity mm-hmm. rather than keep piling on all these options. Uh, I, 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 quite, uh, I quite, quite thoroughly agree with you there, Jay. So, Matt, here we are. As sad as it is, we we do have to have limit our the length of our presentations, Mm -hmm. uh, Jay, because people people stop running or reach the end of their commute or something. Mm But uh, Matt, all right, thank you so much, Jay. It's been wonderful having you here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And as always, we'll point everybody to your resources in the show notes. But uh, for now, um, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's that was fun. That was yeah. that was was fun. Now I don't know uh, who's um, uh, if you're watching. If you're watching this on the uh, YouTube video, uh, Jay is 81. I mean, <laughs> there I just uh, am so inspired by these people who are just in there doing stuff, and uh, their age means nothing. I, I'm working with another uh, dear wonderful fella uh, at the moment. He's 83. 
and wow. we're working on a program. And I and I say, how quickly should we do it? And he said, oh, pretty quickly, if you wouldn't mind. So, so that's a lot of fun. But I, I just love the work he's done and how he's pulled it together, and also how he partners uh, uh, so warmly with his wife. That uh, that was a lovely story too. I, I really liked him. Yeah. Yes, and as, as always, we will leave links in the show notes to Jay's work so you can connect with him. And if you do appreciate what we're doing here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, we would love for you to come across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net, become part of the tribe and join us at our academy site there. Uh, For a single subscription, you have access to a, a whole archive of material that we have been putting together since 2013. Yes, there is a mass of stuff uh, and almost uh, individual courses are, uh, are equivalent value to what people are, are uh, asking for. And I think it's just good to remind just quickly that we actually have a fairly inexpensive membership price. And the reason is because we think that is what you uh, should be spending in mm-hmm. order to get your, your ongoing education. You probably need two or three things. Make us one of them because you will get a host of wonderful gear. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.